Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. And welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 Bloody Objects. What do we have today, Jamie? Object number 11. A joint of English beef. Propaganda. Winning friends and playing with the enemy. Great. So today we're going to have a stab at propaganda. Defined in the Oxford Dictionary as the systematic dissemination of doctrine, rumour or selected information to propagate or promote a particular doctrine, view or practice. Or, in the words of Francis Cornford, that branch of the art of lying which consists in very nearly deceiving your friends without quite deceiving your enemies. I don't think he was a fan of propaganda. However, propaganda is more than that. It is more than spin and fake news. At its most deft, in both peace and war, propaganda can galvanise populations, cow the enemy and direct the course of historical events. It can boost morale and undermine the enemy. So, Jamie, let's start with William Hogarth's 1748 painting, which you can view at the Tate. Oh, the roast beef of old England, and in brackets, the gate of Calais. It's a classic, Tom, because it does what propaganda needs to do. It not only is there to boost the morale of the Brits, but it's there to undermine the morale and spirit of the French. And it's good satire at the same time. This wasn't government propaganda. It was William Hogarth having a go. He had been arrested by the French while sketching the English arms on the gates of Calais in 1748. And so he had a grudge. He had a real problem with the French. And so what he did, he came back to England and he painted this fantastic picture that really got under the skin of what the English minded about the French. And that's really the key to propaganda. It goes with the grain. It exploits prejudices that are already there. It's really the nudge that makes people go, oh, we recognise that. And whether it's Hogarth's painting or the Nazis later on, it finds fertile soil in which to grow. Uh, So it was based on a popular song at the time. And can you just describe some of the elements? Well, the song actually was there to really promote the idea of Britain's pride, Britain's power, Britain's wealth. And the side of beef, English beef, was seen as a symbol of that. So in the painting, you have the side of beef heading into an English tavern in Calais. And that is the centre of the painting. But all around are the sort of pet hates of Hogarth and the targets that he's going for. So outside the gate of Calais, you have fishwives on the left who are looking at a pile of dead skate, and the fish have the same faces as the fishwives. So Hogarth is saying, God, aren't the French ugly? Then on the right, you have this starving Jacobite who's reduced to eating 
uh, an onion and a piece of bread. Yes, it's it's a bloody brigadoon. He's dressed from head to foot in tartan. Yes, so what Hogarth is saying is they backed the wrong side and the French backed the Jacobites in Scotland. This refers to the uprising led by Bonnie Prince Charlie that was put down by the Duke of Cumberland in 1745. And who was backing it? The French. They sent a fleet, they sent troops, the fleet was scattered, so the French never landed and helped. Of course, Bonnie Prince Charlie was routed and the Jacobite rebellion was crushed at the Battle of Culloden. Bonnie Prince Charlie was spirited away in, guess what, a French frigate uh, to end up drinking himself to death in exile. There's uh, a crow on the gate, the, uh, the Calais gate, on top of the gate, which also apparently is uh, a Jacobite symbol. So the crow has flown to take refuge. That's right. And, and through the gate, you can see symbols of Catholicism, which is another great hate of Hogarth. And this is trying to create this divide between Catholic France, a Catholic continent, and English Protestantism and English beef. And so the only fat person in the whole picture is a friar leaning out to touch the side of beef. And then all around are these puny, bedraggled, starving French soldiers who are reduced to eating gruel. Eight years later, you have the Seven Years' War with the French between Britain and France, in which the Brits kicked the butt of the French from India to the Caribbean and all the way up to Montreal and Quebec. So it's in the shadow of this sort of hostility. And it wouldn't be out of place in our Why We Hate the French podcast because it encapsulates all these sort of prejudices that the Brits had about the French and they're backing our enemies, the Jacobites. So you can see this as a fantastic form of propaganda and, and satire. And there in the corner is Hogarth about to be arrested, so, sketching away. And, and, of course, the whole thing sort of goes around the idea of insults that we like throwing at the French and they like throwing at us, um, which um, punned on, on food. Food's always been at the centre of it, which is why the French have always called us roast beef and why we've always called them frogs. And, and Hogarth really pushed that agenda as well. It's there to undermine the French, to parody them, to show how piteous they are, and to show the strength of England, the strength of Britain. Well, he didn't actually invent propaganda. It was certainly well established way back in the mists of time. But Let's go to Hans Holbein and the Tudor era. Yes, Holbein captured the art of propaganda, of promoting power and influential characters very well. There's a lot of symbolism in his painting. When he paints Henry VIII, there is that standard picture of Henry VIII that didn't change throughout his life. Whether Holbein is painting the ambassadors or his famous portraits of Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More that are in the frick in New York, there's always symbolism. There's always this projection of power. You know, you look at Thomas More, he's got that austere look in his eye. This is a man who had quite a lot of heretics burnt at the stake. They always say, but the portrait doesn't get across his scholarly aspect. And some people have said, oh, well, he's got a slight hunch in his back, so that suggests he was scholarly. But he's wearing the robes of the Duchy of Lancaster, those black robes, and it symbolises power. 
But the other thing about Holbein is they always say, apart from Henry VIII, most of his subjects had a slightly haunted look in their eye because they all ended up losing their heads. He, he well, certainly Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More did. Um, yes, they did, and so many others did as well. But you know that was Tudor portraiture, and that was really, apart from pamphleting, how propaganda was pushed out abroad. That was how people saw the monarch. And apart from royal progresses, it was really royal portraiture that created that element of power, that belief in the power of the crown. When Queen Elizabeth I eventually came to the throne, Henry VIII's daughter via Anne Boleyn, she really took it to a new level, didn't she, with the help, I guess, of Walsingham. She needed propaganda. She was in an incredibly vulnerable position. She was a woman. She was considered illegitimate as the bastard daughter, as many saw it, of Anne Boleyn. She didn't have an heir. She was trying to prop up and embed the Protestant faith in England. And she was beset by assassination attempts and by enemies overseas. So she had to create this image of power. She had to create this sense of legitimacy. And portraiture was how a lot of it was done. Yes, there were royal progresses where people, the public, could see her. Yes, she controlled the printing presses. There were 60 in England basically controlled and licensed by the Privy Council. So she could control the flow of information and stop Catholic tracts coming into this country through uh, the, the pursuivants and searchers and intelligences. There was this constant battle to keep Protestantism, the Church of England in the fore, and her legitimacy was linked to that. It's really clever, actually. I mean, she basically created herself as a living legend, she wedded herself to the nation, to the church, and became sort of in, indivisible from the fate of the nation. Yes, there were services on Ascension Day every year for 20 years or more that proclaimed her as head of the church, claiming that she was wedded to the church, to her people, to her nation. And this was then expressed in portraits as well. Every Sunday, people had to go to church and they had to say prayers for the Queen. So she created this link between herself and the church and the nation. And it was very powerful. And war helped that later on. The the idea of using the church as her sort of mouthpiece, I, I mean, even my sort of parents' generation was still very much of uh, going to church and the prayers for the Queen and all that ritual, which always slightly puzzled me. It makes much more sense that this was, you know, utilised way back then and was still very much going on in the 20th century. But it was extremely important then because England was under threat and you saw that with the Armada. And that really takes us on to the uh, Armada portrait that yeah. came soon after 1588. No one knows who the painter was. It doesn't matter because the focus of attention is Elizabeth. And again, the symbology there would have been understood by the people at the time. And it was perfect propaganda because over her right shoulder, you have the storm-tossed Spanish ships being wrecked and flung around the ocean. On the left-hand side through the window, you see a calm sea under the sunshine, and there's the English fleet. 
and Elizabeth is in the middle of that, sitting for her portrait. And there's that sort of Moses idea that she parted the Red Sea. Mm. She took her people to safety and liberty and freedom. It, it gives her that divine connection. Gloriana. She became Gloriana. And so whether it was that or her wearing armour at Tilbury and sitting on a horse and giving a speech, all these things added to the legend, gave her this idea, gave the people the idea of Elizabeth at one with her nation and her people. Would the people have seen this or there would be copies made with her and distributed? There would be prints made, copies made. Her, her face remained standard throughout her life. So she never aged. That was one thing. You know, by the end of her life, she was rotting, basically. I mean, her teeth were black and falling out. She used to clean her teeth with honey. She used to suck on sweets all the time. So her teeth were rotting. Her face was rotting from the lead makeup and everything else. People didn't like going near her because she smelled so bad. But that doesn't matter because she was Gloriana and the portrait showed her as this semi-divine being and the saviour of her nation. And the second portrait is known as the Rainbow Portrait uh, at Hatfield, and another anonymous painting. And a superb summary of her life and her gift to the nation. You know, there is so much symbolism in that painting the eyes and ears embroidered on her dress, suggesting that she missed nothing, she heard everything, the pearls around her neck that gave the image of virginity, the serpent embroidered on her sleeve, suggesting she was cunning, and most importantly, the rainbow in her hand that suggested that she had brought peace to her nation. Yeah, that was uh, and a little Latin inscription next to it, non sine sole aris, no rainbow without the sun. Exactly. She had brought sunlight to her nation. She had brought peace. This was the positive propaganda that was being pushed out, pumped out by the time of her death. I mean, this was 1600. She died three years later. But it was a superb summary of what she had achieved and what she had done. And, and her power was in the ascendant. I mean, she was dominating her nation. And that portrait and the Amada portrait is saying she is the Virgin Queen and she turned it to her advantage. What had started as a negative at the start of her reign, by the end of her reign, had been turned around by propaganda, by image manipulation, into a huge positive that she was wedded only to her people, her nation and her religion, to the Protestant faith. And she had defended them all. And Walsingham, her spy chief, he was uh, good at black propaganda, was he? Yes, we've talked about different types of propaganda. There's always been what has been called white propaganda, the sort of positive propaganda, the, the, the sort of overt propaganda, such as the portraits. But there was always and has always been black propaganda, covert propaganda, where the sources aren't known. And Walsingham being the spy chief who beggared himself defending Elizabeth over the years... You know, he was, at the same time as promoting her in England, was also trying to undermine the enemy. So there were 
pamphlets, as we talked in the Armada podcast, there were pamphlets going out in Spain saying that the Armada, if it sailed, was doomed, don't go on it, and it purported to be from soothsayers in Spain rather than from Walsingham himself. So there were underground printing presses, there were agents spreading, disseminating rumours and anti-Spanish propaganda. So there are always those two sides. If you go through any war or any time of tension, there are those two aspects of propaganda. But the portraits are, are vital in creating that image of Elizabeth. So time and again throughout history, we see this idea in propaganda of the cult of the personality. What is that? It's using the individual to create that myth of omnipotence, that it's indivisible, the leader is indivisible from the nation that he or she leads. And we've talked about Elizabeth, we've talked about Henry VIII, and you see it in modern times, that what is so useful in creating the cult of personality is having a totalitarian regime. If you have a system that is undemocratic, it's far easier to create that cult of personality because you've got no one undermining you. You've got no one in the political realm trying to trip you up or criticising. You know, so, yeah, so. yeah. Well, we've all, we've all been to the, those countries where in every sort of shop and barber and, and hotel, there's a picture of El Presidente uh, above the desk. Yes, and the more crap the country and the more crap the political system, the more likely you are to get that cult of personality, certainly in modern times. What happens is that the personality, the leader around which an image is being created, they so often tap into the idea of the myth of foundation, the myth of salvation or the myth of elevation, which essentially means that they are linked to the creation of the country or they are linked to dragging that country from the darkness into the light. Yeah, and however ghastly they are later on. I mean, Mugabe was, an ex was a very good example. I mean, he went on to do appalling things, but he'd been the leader of the revolution and had brought Zimbabwe um, into independence. Yes, and they so often... Uh, call themselves the father of the nation. And so it's very difficult to dislodge them. That is what the propaganda coalesces around, that cult of personality. You then have the second leg, really, of, of reinforcing that image, reinforcing that propaganda, and that is linking that individual to a divine source of power or to a single political creed like communism. So again, it's very difficult to dislodge them because those leaders are seen as saviours of the nation, as leaders of the nation, as the nation itself. They come to personify the country. So if you're against the leader, you're against the nation and therefore you're a traitor. Yeah. So that is what embeds them. You can see the power of propaganda and the power of the cult of personality with the death of people like Stalin because there were Zeks, convicts, inmates of the labour camps, the gulag, who wept in their thousands when they heard that Stalin had died because he had made himself indivisible, inseparable from the country itself. And so people wept in the same way that in North Korea today, because of 
propaganda. You can get someone with a pudding face and a pudding bowl haircut who's a total gimp being elevated to the status of a hero. And that's what propaganda can do. Oh, there goes our North Korean listenership. Of one. (laughs) And I think the third leg in terms of propaganda is really the concept of war, just war. That if there is, just like the Armada, for example, a campaign that has to be waged, that leader can link himself to the campaign or herself to the campaign and be seen as the saviour of the nation. And particularly if it's seen as a just war, that it's in self-defence or it's proportionate or discriminate or it's stopping barbarity, then you put yourself in a much stronger position because you are on the side of the good. Yeah, and you can bring in religion as well and, and make it that you're on the side of God. Well, as we said, that divine intervention, the, the, the divine right of that ruler. And those are really the things that have been established by propaganda and that propaganda links to uh, down the centuries. OK, so you've got the myths, foundation, salvation, elevation. You've got the higher cause, divine right, and then the third leg of the stool, a just war. And you see that all the way through. I mean, in the English Civil War, you started getting good against evil, the idea on the parliamentarian side that the royalist cause was led by the Antichrist or led by darker forces. Yeah, well, we even had um, Prince Rupert, who was uh, in charge of the uh, royalist cavalry, and he had his poodle boy who was killed at Marston Moor. He was described by the parliamentarians as a, as a familiar, basically as a devil dog, as, as uh, the, the, that um, as a Prince witch- Rupert yeah. was in league with the devil. Yes, as a sort of witch's sidekick. Yeah. Maybe he fell off the broomstick at Marston Moor. <laughs> I, you can see some pictures of a uh, boy. He's a, a remarkable-looking poodle. I mean, apart from anything else, both him and Prince, he- Prince Rupert need a damn good haircut. <laughs> yes, well, I don't think he was ever going to survive a cavalry charge. <laughs> he, I think maybe he enjoyed himself. He wasn't going to come off well out of that one. <laughs> and, and you can see that also in, in the propaganda posters, which I'll put up on the Instagram, on both sides, uh, the way that they described the other side. And it was nearly always about the skewering of children on bayonets and the raping of women and the general terrible behaviour of the other side. And that carries on way into the 20th century and the conflicts that occurred then. It, it, It becomes standard practice. You vilify the enemy. You claim that they are morally depraved, that they're backwards, that they're barbarians. This is just human nature. This is how countries and people react and respond. And propaganda feeds on that and plays on it, plays to those prejudices. So propaganda tends to work best when there are aspects of truth in it. Yes, and all you have to do is look at James Gilray's famous cartoon, Attacking Napoleon. It's so much easier to vilify the enemy when it feeds into beliefs that already exist. There was a strong tradition of cartoons, of course, in English society. So that Gilray cartoon, Little Boney in a Strong Fit, fed into all those prejudices, the idea of the tiny little man with a huge hat throwing his things around. It essentially played into what the English already thought, that Bonaparte was tiny, that he was temperamental, that he was typically 
Corsican French, that he threw things around, that he was irrational and deeply unpleasant. And like Hogarth, there was that element of satire, that element of piss-taking that you know, was very strong in the British satirical press. So we come to the 20th century and the First World War and propaganda takes a step up. Yes, because the pressure was so great, the losses were so huge. So essentially, propaganda had to ratchet up and you had to demonise the enemy yet more and bolster morale at home. So when you look at the vilification of the Germans, what happened is that the press and the propaganda merchants home in on all the things that support our view of the Germans as barbarians. So you had the death of Edith Cavell, her execution, which was greeted with absolute horror throughout America and Britain. You had the sinking of the Lusitania. You had the German terror and the horror stories that came out of there in Belgium when they invaded Belgium in 1914. So all these things feed into the mix, feed into the propaganda. And it's perfect for the propaganda machine because they just select these things and say, look, we told you all along, this is what we're fighting. It's horrendous, it's total war, and we have to beat these devilish people. OK, Jamie, uh, so what about this business with the soap? That was always a rumour that circulated if you go and see musicals like Oh, What a Lovely War, that's one of the things that, that is mentioned. There was always this rumour that the Germans were such barbarians that they boiled people down and took their fat and put them into soap. And yet it was World War Two when that became a reality of a kind. It's always been said that maybe at Belzec death camp, which killed up to 500,000 people during the war, that there was a soap factory there, but as there were only seven survivors from that camp, no one quite knows. There was a rumour that in Lublin there was a soap plant using humans. But the greatest evidence is probably that there was an experimental plant in Danzig that boiled people down and got fat from them for soap. And there was evidence given at the Nuremberg trials on that subject. So one basically had to wait till the Second World War before those rumours from the Great War actually had any kind of foundation at all. And that was such a, an appalling idea and story that even Himmler was concerned about that being believed. Yes, because the one thing the Nazis didn't want was for the Holocaust, the story of the Holocaust, to actually gain credibility, to actually gain uh, airtime or press time and so he tried to shut that rumour down, uh, particularly as the Nazis were trying to peddle the myth with their own propaganda. The Jews at places like Theresienstadt were well looked after, but we'll talk about that later. But certainly in the First World War, because of this total war, because of this total commitment to beating the Germans, you had to not only undermine them, but you had to improve your own morale at home. Yes, so they had the, the famous letter from the little mother. Yes, and no one quite knows about that mystery, that who it came from, whether it was a government 
instigated letter or whether it was uh, a sub-editor or editor of the Times who wrote it. But it was this letter from a little mother saying that she was willing to sacrifice her sons, talking about the bugle call uh, and what was needed, and talking about the men in the trenches as human ammunition. It's always been believed that that letter was probably written by a man. It has very male sort of lines in it, and it's very jingoistic, it's very patriotic. And it was, it was to respond to the feeling by 1916-17 that it was a meat grinder on the Western Front, and, it, and people like Sassoon was beginning to say it was pointless. Yes, and when you have war poets coming out with incredibly uh, moving poems and embittered poems about what was going on on the Western Front, the government was desperate to counter that, desperate to maintain recruitment, uh, desperate to maintain morale both at home uh, and in the trenches. You, know, you see that in, in things like The Little Mother, you see it in recruitment campaigns. I mean, right at the start of the war with Kitchener, Your Country Needs You, that famous portrait, that all was part of that need to create a jingoistic fervour, a, a nationalistic fervour, and a war fervour. And it worked. I mean, the, the regiments that were formed after the original destruction of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, Kitchener's Pals regiments, were extremely successful. And again, it helps if you demonise the enemy. You have to in those situations. And come the Second World War, that was needed even more. You might need more than a cup of tea and a biscuit to get through this next reading, but please bear with me, dear listener. This is Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. But in Germany, through the medium of the schools, the press and the comic papers, an idea of the Englishman was gradually formed which was bound eventually to lead to the worst kind of self-deception. This absurdity slowly but persistently spread into every quarter of German life. The result was an undervaluation for which we have had to pay a heavy penalty. The delusion was so profound that the Englishman was looked upon as a shrewd businessman, but personally a coward even to an incredible degree. Unfortunately, our lofty teachers of professorial history did not bring home to the minds of their pupils the truth that it is not possible to build up such a mighty organisation as the British Empire by mere swindle and fraud. The few who called attention to that truth were either ignored or silenced. I can vividly recall to mind the astonished looks of my comrades when they found themselves personally face to face for the first time with the Tommies in Flanders. After a few days of fighting, the consciousness slowly dawned on our soldiers that those Scotsmen were not like the ones we had seen described and caricatured in the comic papers and mentioned in the communiques. It was then that I formed my first ideas of the efficiency of various forms of propaganda. OK, well, we might as well talk about the Nazis now. And uh, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf while he was in prison, and actually, interestingly, it was published in Britain in an abridged form to kind of reduce the anti-Semitism in it. And when the Foreign Office had a copy of the unabridged version, which they managed to lose, although I've actually still got my grandfather's version, um, which has a large exclamation mark in it. 
I'm not surprised there's a large exclamation mark. I mean, you, your grandfather must have just opened it, looked at it, and thought, this is unbelievable nonsense. And anyone reading it at the time, certainly in this country, in English, it was just a rambling mess, a lot of it. I remember back at school having to write an essay on was Mein Kampf a blueprint for aggression? And the answer was, well, in the right circumstances, yes, but it was so ill-formed, it was so poorly argued, it was so badly written. I think the main thing to talk about about Mein Kampf is that it was written when the Nazis were a minority interest at that stage. They were still simply street fighters. But what it did over the years was plug into political and social themes that were very apparent and very strong. My father was at Graz University in 1923, the same year as the Munich Putsch, the same year that Hitler ended up in Landsberg Prison. He was doing his PhD at Graz and two Jewish students walked into the student refectory and all the students were banging their steins on the table, shouting, Juden raus, Juden raus, Jews get out, Jews get out. And so you can see that unless you were anti-Semitic, you were never going to be elected as a politician, either in Austria or southern Germany. It was just seen as the background noise. And what Hitler and the Nazis did, and they did it brilliantly with the Ministry of Propaganda and Josef Goebbels behind it, was feed on the fears, feed on those uh, themes that were already so strong in German society. The concept that Germany had not actually lost the First World War on the front, but had been betrayed by politicians. The fact that the Germans were looking for a scapegoat and the Jews were that convenient scapegoat. And the idea that Germany was rising again and had a heroic future destiny. These were all the things that Hitler tapped into and why the Nazis began to gather converts, gather followers. And yet to us, in hindsight, we think, well, it was all written down there, perhaps in a rambling and badly put way, but to appease Hitler was just never going to work. He was a total fanatic. But people thought he was a clown, from Hindenburg to the industrialists to the generals. They, they thought he was controllable. On the German side, but I mean on our side, when we're thinking about rearming or be preparing for a war with Germany, that the feeling from the First World War of really not wanting to have to go back into the trenches was so strong that they just tried to appease whatever was written clearly in this book that Hitler intended to carry out. Which is why, back in Britain... Everyone saw, or certainly the appeasers saw, Churchill as a warmonger rather than the visionary and someone who had foresight, the, the great leader that we see today, that we look back on today. He was seen as a troublemaker and someone who was against peace. It's interesting to see that during that period, the Germans were very pro-British with their propaganda. They were saying that, oh, Britain is uh, this imperialist power, but it has a calm, benign effect on its possessions around the world. Come the start of the Second World War, that all changes, and the, the Nazi propaganda machine kicks in with how can... The British accuse us of anti-Semitism and racism and unpleasantness when they're doing terrible things in India. They're putting down independence movements all around the world. So you can see this double-edged sword. You can see this campaign that is going on. 
And throughout the 30s, the Germans, yes, on one side, Goebbels and his propaganda ministry, also known as the Ministry of Public Enlightenment, I might add, uh, was pushing this heroic German thing, this rising of the new Germany. The triumph of will. The triumph of the will, Mm. the Berlin Olympics of 36, uh, with their trumpet call at the beginning and the Madag gymnastic girls going out with their hoops and their clubs. This was seen as the triumph of Aryan Germany. Which had a slight dent knocked out of it by Jesse Owens. The American athlete who uh, won the gold medal. Yes, it was cripplingly embarrassing to the Nazi hierarchs. But I should say he won four gold medals. Yes, and and but what you see all the way along, apart from this triumphalist approach of Nazi propaganda, there's also what it's doing is preparing the way for the darker arts, for the anti-Semitism and for the rearmament of Germany at the same time. And so you start getting the Nuremberg Laws in 1935 that started the legitimate, in terms of what the Nazis believed, the legitimate persecution of the Jews. You got horrendous anti-Semitic posters being put up on how the racial purity of Germany was being defiled by Jews. You had children's books such as The Poisonous Mushroom coming out, um, teaching children to look not, not just for poisonous mushrooms, but also the poisonous individuals, the Jews in the midst of Germany. And so that propaganda was poisoning the minds of children upwards throughout the 30s. And those children, what, in the mid-30s, would be the young soldiers in the mid-40s. Yes. So, I mean, they were completely brainwashed by then. And you can see why the Volkssturm and the Hitler Youth, by the time, the end of the Second World War, were the ones who were fighting so fanatically because they were the ones who were so utterly brainwashed leading up to the... Second World War. I knew Germans from that generation. They loved being in the Hitler Youth because it was maypoles and it was marching and it was scouting and it was the woods and, you know, the concept of strength through joy and fitness and being outside. All these positive messages, but underneath... The hideous dark underneath. Yes, and that's what propaganda allows you to do. We we talked about the cult of personality. It, It allowed... Hitler to establish himself as Germany. And so by the end of the war, of course, it allowed him to create this idea that he was Germany. And if he died, Germany would die. Germany would go to this fiery Valhalla just as he was going to that destination. Here are the Reichsender Hambusch, Station Bremen and Station DXB. The diplomatic correspondent of the Italian newspaper Tribuna writes that England and France are spreading false and misleading rumours about alleged intentions of Germany in the Balkans to create trouble and panic in that area, which has so far been kept out of the war. The Italian journalist points out that these allegations against Germany are entirely unfounded because every German interest favours the maintenance of peace in the Balkans whereas only England and France could be interested in causing trouble in this region, which is so important for German supplies. So what about Lord Hawhaw? Yes, that was classic Nazi propaganda, and it was always quite clumsy because no one took him seriously in Britain. 
you know, this is the thing about propaganda, as we said right at the beginning. It has to go with the grain. It has to find fertile territory in which to sort of plant itself. And the Brits being pretty sceptical and laughing at things, they were never going to take it that seriously. They listened to it quite often for information about bombing campaigns and things like that. But they never listened to it in terms of this is actually what is going on. This it is, is, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe no. it. It, it, it. And it was parodied in such things as Lord Hee-Haw and the Americans parodied mm. it as well. But And it so, says something for the authorities that they were, you know, not so terrified. I mean, were, were, was anyone worried in government that, that people might believe it? And I don't think so particularly. I mean, there were certainly dark points of the war, but we had our own propaganda campaigns as well going on. You know, we talked about having a just war. Everyone knew that this was a just war. Everyone knew that Hitler had sent his armies into Poland, into Czechoslovakia, and then into France and Holland and Denmark. So this was obviously a war that had to be fought. There was no compromising by that stage. And later on, of course, it became a concept of unconditional surrender, which the Allies pursued to to the nth degree. They were never going to compromise on that. But Goebbels' propaganda machine was was incredibly efficient and capable. Yes, and we saw it during the war itself, I mean, not just through the 30s. Uh, what was extraordinary, when the British forces got off the beaches at Dunkirk, Goebbels immediately turned that to the German advantage and sent out waves of propaganda across France saying the British had cut and run, the British were cowards, the British had left France to their fate. There was no, by the way, the French should have stood up and fought. The, the French ended up capitulating or, or signed an agreement to create Vichy. None of that at all. It was all the British had cut and run. And it was very successful in creating a huge wave of Anglophobia across France in the initial stages of the war. Yeah, and, and even though the, the British army was rescued at Dunkirk, there were a lot of French soldiers that got across as well, weren't there? A couple of hundred thousand, I think. Indeed. Yeah. And you know, had we not got our forces out, we would not have been able to regroup and we would never have ended up being the offshore aircraft carrier and the launch pad for the Normandy invasion. So that was necessary, what we did. And Goebbels managed to gloss over everything. Even the Holocaust. Even uh, the Holocaust, yeah. one, one of the reasons that the Allies never really got to grips with the scale of the Holocaust, they knew that agents who were captured were sent out there they, to concentration camps. They knew that Jews are being persecuted and being transported. But they never really understood that there was this systematic extermination or on the scale that actually occurred. And if you look at the sort of things that Goebbels was doing with Theresienstadt, the transit camp, the ghetto in Moravia for Jews, he was making films of Theresienstadt. He was getting in the International Red Cross and having the inmates sign letters of what was going on there and showing that there was a rich cultural life, that children had playgrounds, that there were operas, plays, concerts. And, of course, all the Jews there ended up being exterminated, although at one stage Himmler was trying to barter them whilst he was putting out peace feelers uh, to the Allies. 
But it just shows the power of the Nazi propaganda machine. You know, Theresienstadt is a fine example of that, that even the, the complete horrors of the Holocaust can be glossed over, can be disguised, and can be spun as something virtuous. And it certainly pulled the wool over the eyes of the International Red Cross. And then as things started to fall apart for the Nazis at the end of the war, they created additional myths. Yes, they created the myth of the Southern Redoubt, and that was a myth that was actually started in uh, British and American press, the idea that the Germans were going to make a last stand, that Hitler was going to do a bunk to the mountains of Bavaria. Rumours started coming out about underground weapons facilities, of arms caches, of factories, that SS divisions had moved down there, that there were up to 300,000 Wehrmacht soldiers basing themselves there. It was no by the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, that there was a werewolf underground movement being established there. But the OSS knew that it would take two years to build fortifications there because that's how long it took the Swiss to build their fortifications. And yet, so, and yet um, the US General Bradley swerved in that direction to, to go and sort it out. It completely screwed the entire Allied push across the Rhine and into Germany. It just slowed them down. Yeah. And people like William Casey, who became director of the CIA later on and was uh, head of OSS secret intelligence in Europe, always claimed that had we maintained our push, we would have got to Berlin before Zhukov got there. But Ike was very cautious. The West was very cautious. And it played into Russian propaganda hands because the Russians are also peddling the myth of the southern redoubt, of this Bavarian fortress. It completely played with the minds of the Allies and changed their strategy. So again, that is the power of propaganda. Well, let's talk about Soviet propaganda. Just like Nazi propaganda, they wanted to get the young. They believed that children were malleable. They saw the family as a serious obstacle to the proper achievement of communist ideals and the implementation of Soviet ideology. So they concentrated very much on children. They had several areas that they wanted to focus on. It was so much easier producing Soviet propaganda because there was no opposition. If you have a newspaper called Pravda, meaning truth, you know that all they're going to be peddling is one giant lie, or many giant lies. So they wanted to mould this new society, and under Stalin it became, as we know, totally tyrannical. They wanted to create the new man, the heroic man, and you saw the propaganda, you saw the statues, the buildings had that Soviet style to them. This was the future. So creating the new man who was completely subservient to the state was willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the mother country and for the Soviet ideal. That was what was demanded. And any deviation from that, any discrepancy from the message that was peddled by the Soviet hierarchy, that was punishable by death or being sent to the gulag. Uh, there was no deviation from ideological purity as far as the Soviets were concerned. In fact, they almost had a better grip on it than the Nazis. Yes, and one of the things that Stalin did, he was not shy of 
killing everyone around him. One thing Hitler did was keep everyone around him, certainly his old comrades. Sort of in competition with each other. Yes, he quite enjoyed that. And he certainly didn't execute his nearest and dearest, which is Stalin made a habit of it because he never trusted them. Uh, Hitler always knew that he was never going to be overthrown by any of his sidekicks, although later on there were the beginnings of doubt and the beginnings of rivalry that might have pushed him aside, certainly in the Berlin days of the war. And of course, being the Soviets, they featured heavily on the idea of class war. Rubbing out the bourgeoisie was key to it. And again, propaganda was key to that. Uh, Everyone was seen as a potential class traitor. So you had to be totally committed to the proletariat ideal. So there's a famous cartoon of Lenin sweeping class enemies off the globe with a broom and they were sort of industrialists and aristocrats and the bourgeoisie and wealthy kulaks, the peasants that were stopping his reform. And anything was allowed when it came to class war. So that was really the second leg of uh, Soviet propaganda and ramping up the pressure on what the communists allowed themselves to get away with, what they thought they needed to do. The third leg of all of this was, of course, industrialization and production. Because of the production targets that were set and the rapid industrialization that the Soviets embarked upon, nothing could stand in the way and it legitimized the slaughter of millions of peasants, the starvation that went on everywhere uh, from the Ukraine and across Russia. That was all perfectly acceptable and the propaganda allowed for it, all covered it up uh, because, of course, the Soviet ideal was all. And And to keep it all in check, number four, you get to denounce anyone and and it's uh, the right thing to do as a Soviet, a good Soviet, including your own family. Yes, and there was the entire secret police mentality that embedded itself and ran through the whole of society. There's the famous legend of Pavlik Morozov, who denounced his father, who was engaged in forging documents. And And this is a 13-year-old boy. Yes, and it was a true story. He denounced his father. His father was immediately killed. And what happened was that the family of Pavlik was so appalled at what he did that they killed him. So in turn, they were killed. So this was the sort of communist equivalent of a morality tale, that you had to do your duty, whatever the cost. And Pavlik was held up as this virtuous Soviet citizen. And again, it goes back to the idea that the family is poisonous, the family isn't necessary, and all that is necessary is the state to run your lives. So you can see how propaganda was so important during this stage. And once the Second World War came along, of course, there was no mention of how totally incompetent Stalin had been, how he had banged up his generals in jail. I mean, there were generals turning up uh, at the front with no fingernails because they had been pulled out by the NKVD secret police. But this was just the way of things. This was the brutality that was accepted. And given the enormous losses, the costs to the Soviet people, 
during this time. Propaganda had to play its role. This was a almost wholly heroic, patriotic war. Stalin had no intention of losing it. His generals had no intention of losing it. So it was going to be a difficult campaign, a horrendous campaign, and propaganda played its part, not only in trying to inspire the Soviet people, but there was also a need to vilify the Nazis, which was easy to do because the Nazis were so barbaric and the losses they inflicted on the Soviet people, the cruelty they inflicted on the Soviet people was so immense. So Soviet propaganda did not find it hard to find targets for their venom and hate. But the Soviets were clever in the way that they uh, would take German uh, prisoners, uh, officers, and sort of flip them and send them back as a, a propaganda tool. There was always the Free Germany Committee that was set up by senior German officers that had fallen into Soviet hands who were then retrained. And it was in their interests to actually do what the Soviets said. Uh, you know, we all know how few people came back from the gulag after the fall of Stalingrad and the surrender of the Sixth Army. So if you wanted to survive, you might as well play ball with the Soviets. So you got senior officers like General Walter von Seidlitz, who were completely co-opted by the Soviets, uh, helped set up this committee, broadcast on Radio Moscow, was sending people back into Germany, back into German lines, and spreading dissent among the German army. It's no coincidence that you know the central command of the German army were instigators, produced a lot of the key figures in the July 2044 plot against Hitler. Um, by the time you get to 44, when, you, when Minsk was surrounded by the Soviet army, you had General Muller, the commander, telling 300,000 German troops that Hitler was the main cause of this problem, uh, had to be brought down, and that they should surrender to the Soviets. So you had widespread mutiny, widespread um, aversion to what the Nazis were doing by that stage. Therefore, Seidlitz and his cohorts thought, and his Soviet masters thought, that it would be fertile territory. But again, as we've said all the way through, for propaganda to succeed, it has to go with the grain. It has to appeal to what people actually think and the sensibilities they hold. And the problem is that given the barbarity and the horrors of the Eastern Front, most Germans wanted to surrender to the Western Allies and not to the Soviets because they knew the war was coming their way if they surrendered to the Soviets. So that propaganda actually failed. It never really worked. If you listen to our podcast on cavalry charge, there's General von Seidelitz uh, mentioned in that as Frederick the Great's fantastic cavalry officer. And I should think he was probably turning in his grave to hear about his possible ancestor who was changing sides and working for the Russians. OK, let's round off our Soviet propaganda with your trip to Russia in the 80s, Jamie. Just to show that propaganda doesn't always work, I remember I was a teenager and was in Russia briefly for a trip and the in-tourist guide, who was plainly reporting back to the KGB, uh, rather pompously pronounced, in the Soviet Union we have free education, free health, and I shouted out, what about free speech? 
And she responded with, if anyone interrupts while I'm talking, they will get off the bus and walk. And everyone on the bus just stood up and got off the bus. You were a troublemaker even in those days. I was. I was starting a trend. You're probably on a list somewhere. It was the start of the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'm convinced of it. (laughs) (laughs) But it just shows that if there's ridicule, if there's humour, if there's scepticism, propaganda can be undermined. Yeah. Well, the Allies, of course, had their own versions of propaganda going on all over the place, and some were very effective. Incredibly effective, and even Goebbels himself admired the Allied effort in that department. He was the past master, so it was praise indeed from him. And propaganda, certainly black propaganda, the wartime propaganda that was there to undermine the Germans was run by the PWE, the Political Warfare Executive at Woburn Abbey. It was extraordinarily effective. I mean, one of the things they did, apart from leafleting and producing a daily newspaper for German troops that was dropped by bombers going over on the milk run, was Radio Calais, which was aimed at German forces in France and in other places in Western Europe. It had a brilliant message because it said, look, if you're competent, if you're proficient and professional, you will be sent to the Eastern Front. You will end up fighting the Soviets. So don't be competent. Don't raise your head above the parapet. Don't be too professional or proficient. And you'll stay put. And so it's subtly... In a nice, cushy post posting. Indeed. So they subtly undermined the sort of German morale. And it was very popular. And... Uh, Goebbels actually commented about this, the, the, the worry that German troops were listening to Radio Calais. And it was very close to the bandwidth of German radio broadcasting from Munich. So it was highly effective. You, you add to that the white propaganda, the BBC output coming from Bush House during the war that was light entertainment and everything else. So the, the, the sort of British message, the Allied message was getting across. And yet it was not illegal in this in, in Britain to listen to Lord Haw Haw, but in Germany there were severe penalties if you were caught. There were, but it didn't stop people tuning in. There was another uh, radio station that uh, PWE set up, and this was uh, supposed to be uh, from a group of electrical engineers, and it was essentially a sabotage radio station, and it was... It was pumping out every evening ideas, concepts, um, techniques on how to sabotage production works throughout the fatherland. No one quite knows how effective it was, but it, it was hand in hand with other ways, with leaflets, with information on how to um, sabotage things, how to put sand into grease. SOE, of course, was spreading throughout occupied France, for example, um, various techniques on uh, destroying boilers, on destroying mechanics, and putting sand in grease was a very good way of doing that. And wasn't Monsieur Peugeot persuaded to sabotage his, uh, his plant? He was, and again, that was through subtle contact from SOE, and I suppose... What was he building? Oh, his plants were helping to build German tank turrets and chassis and things like that because it was a vehicle manufacturing 
facility. So he complied and actually did his bit for the Allied cause. Uh, the Michelin family did not, and so their tyre plants were bombed. Uh, so, again, there was subtle propaganda going on there, that if you comply, you'll be on the winning side. If you don't, you and your family are probably going to get a large number of Allied bombs landing on your plants. So the British government, were they were all at it in all different departments. It was a very sophisticated operation. And highly integrated. You had the political warfare executive based in... Churchill's underground facility at Storey's Gate. You have the Theatre Intelligence Organisation based in Oxford Circus. And that organisation collated data on politics, on economics, on every aspect of German life. And then you had the inter-service topographical organisation with maps. Uh, You had all these organisations. You had the Office of Strategic Services, the American intelligence organization based at 70 Grosvenor Street, and they had an enemy objectives unit uh, coming up with where the best targets would be, and all these fed back to the political warfare executive. And they had thriller writers involved coming up with various schemes. It it was very integrated. They had prisoners of war, they had uh, exiles from Germany, all feeding into this incredible propaganda effort. And it was highly successful. Yeah, so that was the Second World War. All sides were at it, some to a greater success than others. And then we went on to the post-war era and the propaganda of the Cold War. So it, it never ceases. There's always this underlying, ongoing campaign. And sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert. But it's always there. And today... Where are we today? We're in a much more fragmented news environment where people are using social media, people are not listening to the traditional news outlets or those news outlets have lost their credibility, have lost their standing in the public eye. You can see how the BBC is now viewed by large elements of the population. And once that happens, once you have a more fragmented information network, then it's much easier for black propaganda, for those who want to subvert or spread conspiracy theories. They have a much easier ride, a much easier environment in which to operate. And of course, if people don't know their history, uh, they struggle to understand what's going on. Well, they'll never have context, they'll never understand fake news, they'll never have that degree of scepticism that comes with some sort of hinterland, with some sort of understanding of where we come from and where we're going. And someone played to me the other day, uh, some nutter talking on the internet, who was claiming that his father worked for MI6 but was actually employed by the CIA, that his mother worked for MI5 but was actually employed by America's National Security Agency. And this guy had tens of thousands of followers. And you're going, who believes this? I mean, in the first 20 seconds, you know that it's bullshit. But there are still people out there who believe it. And it's because no one has the knowledge base. No one has the breadth of vision or understanding. And I suppose, Tom, at the end of the day, 
that's what we're here to provide. Hopefully, yeah. I still think Wikipedia are a rather wonderful organisation um, and are not like some of the other social media outlets. And, of course, they don't really have any sort of money angle to them. So perhaps that's one reason that they do a better job of providing information than some of the um, other social media outlets. And they're not there to peddle falsehood. I mean, there might be inaccuracies, but they yeah. don't have a yeah. mission to skew the truth. But unfortunately, in the modern age, no one knows where that truth lies. No one knows what to believe and what not to believe. Excellent. Another bloody object to feast on. And now it's lunch and time for a generous helping of the roast beef of old England. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. And it's another symbol of our power and wealth. And that was pure propaganda because we're having Welsh lamb. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Bye. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. I will put images relating to this podcast on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com, and on our Instagram feed. Please subscribe to BVH on the app you use. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a review. Thank you and good luck.